0: With that being said, let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you're new to us, we're making our way through Paul's uh, epistle to the Ephesians. And some believe it came to this direct church in Ephesus. Others think that it was a circular letter that went out throughout Asia Minor. We really don't know. Uh, So if you hear me talking about the Ephesians, Just know that it could be Asia Minor that he has uh, in his mind as well. We'll start at verse 17 and read through verse uh, 24. Now this I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding and they are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And they have become callous Created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Amen. Let's pray. Our father, would you be our teacher now? Would you speak through your servant that we would uh, learn and obey? And not only be hearers of the word that we might become doers thereof. We pray, Holy Spirit, for divine protection. We know the enemy would have us and to sift us and it would have the word of God not fall upon our hearts. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would soften our hearts and make us willing and able to listen to the word of God. We pray that you would also do war in heavenly places against spiritual beings that we can't see, but your scriptures acknowledge that they are real. Would you do war there, O God, that we might see you in your glory, that we might be conformed to your image, that we would make much of Jesus. And that we would be transformed. We pray this for Christ's sake. Amen. So before I uh, attended seminary, I was uh, an engineer with General Electric and I worked with GE for a little over four years. And um, I was hired into what they call the operations management leadership program. OMLP, just a fancy name. There are about 40 of us who were hired into that program the year that I came in. And I'll never forget the day that our program manager, she came to all of of us who were in the program, and she says, hey, I need five people. I need five people to leave within a week or so and to relocate to Madisonville, Kentucky. Now, I guarantee you there's probably five people in here who knows where Madisonville, Kentucky is, and that's my wife and probably my parents, and I guarantee there's probably one or two of you but we relocated Now, put this in perspective that Madisonville is being compared to other offices in China in New York and Los Angeles and South Carolina. So when she says we need five of you to go to Madisonville and possibly work third shift, no one raised their hands, right? And then she explained that they had failed an audit, that the FAA had done an audit there and the, the, that, that location did not do well and that if they did not pass the next audit when they came that the company could lose hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I raised my hand and says, you know what? I'll go, I, I don't care where it is, just, just send me. And I moved to Madisonville, Kentucky and I loved it. I mean, the town was really, really small that everybody in the town either worked for GE, was married to someone who worked for GE or dated someone at GE, it was kind of one of, one of those towns and they made the the airfoils the blades that you see inside of uh, airplane engines Uh, they made them at that location for the entire company and so i walked in and i saw machines that were full of platinum powder that they would spray platinum on the parts so that the parts were not overheating the engine i saw shot peen machines that were as big as this platform i'm on welders, lasers, x-ray techs, you name it, that plant had it. And I tell you, out of all the people that I met, the people who had the most important job were the final inspectors. So if you think about this, you got hundreds of people working across three different shifts, producing these parts, and, and they all converge at the final inspector's desk, right? And every department had three shifts of final inspectors. And this is what, and it was, it was mainly ladies. This is what those ladies did for eight hours straight, right? They got a part and, and they looked at it and they rubbed it and they poked holes in it and they looked at it in the air and they made sure that if there was chip coating on it, that they sent it back, that if, if there were holes missing, if the holes weren't all the way through, that they were the last eyes on the parts. You got to think about it, right? The, like, the, like they were the technical geniuses in the shop. That they could go back to a welder and say, hey, this weld isn't right. They could go back to a person who did platinum coating and say, hey, this part right here doesn't have enough coating on it, right? And so these ladies, that's all they would do. And at the end of every shift, you would get two piles. You'd have a pile of parts that they rejected. They came there, they made it all the way through the, the, the manufacturing process, and they got right to the end, and they would look at it. And they would look and examine it and test it and say, nope. This does not meet the standard. This cannot be shipped out. And they would also have a separate table with all the parts that they did for their shift that met the standards that they would shift, ship out. And so I think that skill, right, that skill of examining and, 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 and assessing and saying, hey, this does not measure up. This cannot go on. It has to stay. All right. Or, hey, this comes through and, and this is to standard. This is acceptable. This goes. Right. I think that's what Paul is getting at, right? I think he's saying if we're going to be believers, we're going to be a lot like Miss Claudia. Miss Claudia was the lady who worked in my department. She was the final inspector. And that's what she did. She sifted everything. If it was good, she sent it on. If it was bad, she rejected it. You know, the stakes were really high because if she sent something out that was inferior, the company was responsible. Human life was at stake. If you were on a plane and the engine was not manufactured correctly, you would have engine failure. The stakes were really, really high. She had to get that right. But she also cost the company money. Right. If she if she sent back parts that measured up, she cost the company money. So she was in a predicament where it mattered. Get it right. If it's wrong, reject it. If it's right, accept it. That's what Paul is saying, that if we're going to grow up into Christ, who is the head, We've got to get good at that skill. We've got to get good at interrogating thoughts and actions and worldviews and speech and behavior. That if we're going to grow up into the head who is Christ, we have to get really good at when things come through, they might bombard our hearts or our eyes or our minds. But we have to get good at saying, wait a minute. Does this measure up to the standard of Christ?" And if it doesn't, we have to reject it, right? But if it does, if it does, we have to keep it. This passes. We keep it. Now, that's the skill that he's telling them. He's going to use language like put off what is old, put off what is defective, right? Stop what is defective, put off what is old, and put on what is right, put on what is good. He's telling us that we have to become Skillful at that if we're going to grow. That's one of the works, the work of putting off and putting on. That's one of the good works that Jesus has saved us for that we might learn this skill and navigate life. And so, what I want to do is sort of ask a few questions and then show us, I'm going to round it out and show us how the gospel enables us to do this. The first thing I want you to write is why is this difficult? Why is it difficult? So just in case you know that, that, that we're broken people here, you're looking at a, a broken man, and I don't always get this right, that in my own life and in my own heart, there are times when there are things that, that come my way that, that are wrong, and rather than reject, I pass it. And there are things in my life and in my heart that are, are right and godly and holy, and rather than embrace it, I, I, I reject that. That I think if we're really, really honest with our hearts and our lives, that that is hard. It's hard, right? To always, every single time, reject everything that is sinful and approve of and do everything that is godly and righteous, right? That, 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 that is hard and it's difficult. And I know it's difficult, one, because Paul says it in the text. He actually has to say it in verse 17. He says, now this I say and I testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. So right there, just stop right there. You hear what Paul's saying? He actually has to tell the church, time out. Here's what you're doing. You belong to Jesus. But look at your life, that, that you're imitating them. You're imitating the Gentiles. You're imitating the people in your city and in your family Who don't know God they have not been rescued by God and Paul has to actually say I say this and he doesn't just say I say this notice what also it says in verse 17 I say this in the Lord so that that that, he's saying two things one I say this to you as an apostle to stop doing this but if you won't listen to me then listen to Jesus Jesus tells you this you cannot live like those who don't know Jesus. Now, when Paul says that to them, you know what it means? It means that that's what they're doing. The reason he has to command them to stop doing it is because that's what they're doing. Now, my question is, why? Like, like, like why is this hard? Why does he have to tell them to not behave like unbelievers? So there's a, a book on the history of Christianity. It's written by a man by the name of Tim Dowley. And listen to what he writes. He's talking about first century Ephesus, right? Or Asia Minor. It's kind of under the same empire. But listen carefully. He says, as long as the church was regarded as a Jewish sect, it was was tolerated by the Roman authorities. For a period, Judaism, which was a small movement, it enjoyed protection by Roman law and government. However, once Judaism and Christianity began to diverge Christians lost the special privileges that, was, that were given to the Jews. The Jews were exempt from emperor worship. But when the church became largely composed of Gentiles and Jews in the same city, it was impossible for them to hide under the shelter of Judaism. Christians, when they refused to offer a pinch of incense on an altar of the divine political leader, the emperor, it was considered unpatriotic and sinful. The official Roman attitude towards Christians became less and less favorable. Christians were subject to outside pressure and outside persecution. You hear what the historian is saying? As long as it was a small sect of Judaism composed of only Jews, they could fly under the radar of the Roman Empire. But the moment you get droves of Gentiles, residents of those cities who came into the church, all of a sudden this it was a big deal. That the Jews did not have to worship the emperor. But the moment you take thousands of Gentiles in that city and they no longer worship the emperor. It's persecution. Listen to what Tertullian wrote. If the river Tiber rises too high, if the Nile River does not rise to the fields, if the sky does not move, or the earth does move, if there is a famine or if there is a plague, the cry at once is, it is because of the Christians. Take them to the lion. All of them to the lion. You get it? That's the tone of the day. That if it, if it does not rain, blame it on the Christians. And if it rains too much, blame it on the Christians. And if we don't have crops, blame it on the Christians. And if there's an earthquake that Christians can't control, blame it on the Christians all of them to the lion. You get it? That's where, where they're growing up, under that type of hostility. And Paul says, "Stand the line. I know you're tempted to jettison the gospel. I know you're tempted because of what you see around you to conform to them." He says, "But no, you get it." So I think one of the reasons it's hard for us family is because of that. You look at the world. We're still in families where people aren't believers. We have really good friends who aren't believers. We look at the Internet, we look at TV, and we're just bombarded, right? With imitation, imitating them. And Paul says, you know what? I get it. I get it. I get that that influence is outside. But here's the thing. It's not just external. It's also internal. Notice what Paul says in verse 22. He actually says, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through the deceitful desires. Paul acknowledges something there, that the problem and the pull, what makes it difficult, is not just the people outside. What makes it difficult to do this skillful work of rejecting what is evil and, and putting on what is good, what makes it difficult is you and me. That for some reason, the old man and the old woman, it hasn't been killed yet. And that's why Paul could write in Romans 7. The, the evil that I don't want to do, that I find that that's what I keep doing. You get it? That, 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 that struggle. The problem isn't just the world. If you lock me up in a room without anyone, that there's something evil in me. The problem is in us, is what Paul is saying and I don't know about you, man, but when I became a believer, I was in Ohio. And, man, I had this truck with these rims on it. And I had a system in it. Like, you just, like, I just, you couldn't tell me anything, right? And I remember when I, I met the Lord. And I remember, like, man, just, I know Jesus now. And it was, it was real. Like, it, I really repented of my sins. And I remember going to the Christian bookstore and getting me a Bible And then I was walking out of the Christian bookstore and I I saw these bumper stickers and one of the bumper stickers says, I heart Jesus. And so I I grabbed it. I'm like, yeah, bro, I I love Jesus, right? And then I saw another bumper sticker and it had like a cross with a little boy kind of like this praying on it, right? And so I got that bumper sticker too, right? And it was white and my my Tahoe was white, right? So I'm like, okay, it's going to look good. So I walked outside of the Christian bookstore and put my Bumper sticker with the cross on my back right window and I put my other bumper sticker. I love Jesus on the back bumper And I was good. You couldn't tell me nothing, right? I'm, I'm riding on 20s and I'm bumping my music and I love Jesus, right? <clears throat> and about three months later, I was out there with alcohol trying to take it off Because my sin wouldn't die I thought something was wrong with me, right? That that, that really high, emotional high, like I knew just enough scripture to like get me in trouble. Like greater is he who is in me than he is in the world. You know, if a man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And in my mind, I'm new, I'm new. I won't struggle, I won't struggle. Man, you you put me around certain people or in certain situations and it was just bad, right? Why? Because the old man, the old woman, now, why does that? Why, why? Why? Why was that hard? Why was it hard when you get in these other settings? Like, 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 what? What? What happens? Malcolm Gladwell has a, a uh, podcast that someone in the church put me on that I, I thank you for. You know who you are. And he talks about the power of the crowd. And he says scholars used to think that that crowds transform the way you think. See, my thing was, it's their fault. If fact, if I just get around the right people, then I'll be fine. But no, the problem was like me as well, It wasn't just them. But Malcolm Gladwell goes on to say the scholars used to think that the crowds transforms the way you think. And then one sociologist says, that simply isn't true. Being around a mob does not cast some spell on you and make you irrational. Rather, people are the way they are internally and external thresholds are crossed. And so he would use this language threshold, a threshold would be a, a person or a cause, right? A person or a cause that gets around you that has enough influence to bring out what's in there. And so he uses this analogy of a teenage boy who gets his permit, and who gets his driver's license, he stays out late, and he has three knucklehead friends in the car with him. And he says that, that, that why in the world would that one boy drive 130 miles an hour down an interstate with no seatbelt on? He says one reason is because he's a knucklehead. Two, because he has three thresholds in the car with him. And all it takes is three. All it takes is three. If it were one, he might not do it. But if you give him the right threshold across, put three people like him who have the same foolishness in their heart around him, he's going to drive, Right. Now, he says, everybody has a threshold. He says, grandmother has a threshold, right? You put grandma in the car. Grandmother, it probably, it might take 100 people, right? (laughs) But he talks, he uses a different analogy for grandmother. He said, grandmother may not get in there and drive 100 miles an hour with three knuckleheads. But if there's a riot across the street from grandmother's house and something's happened to grandmother's daughter and there's been an injustice. You you get what he's saying? He says, hey, all it takes is the right threshold and grandmother will be out there rioting. What's the point he's trying to say? It's not just that the crowd sort of magically makes you do something. He says it's also in here as well. You get it? That's what makes it hard, family. That's what makes it hard to do what Paul is calling them to do. There's something outside of us, the world, and it is real and it is strong and it is powerful. And the old man or the old woman, it still lives in you and it will not die until you die. And I don't know why God did it that way. I I don't know why. When we're saved, that that old man, he still just lingers and lingers and lingers. And I hate him, right? Like in my inner heart, like I hate that we're still together. I wish I could like divorce that and, and put him to sleep forever, right? And Jesus says, hey, it'll happen. It'll happen in glory. We're moving to a place where one day you will be as I am. But until then, family, we're here on this earth and we'll struggle That's why it's hard. I think the second thing the text shows us is, is is it really dangerous, right? First, uh, why is it difficult? And the second question is, is it really dangerous? And I I would say yes. I think Paul is doing something that's really gracious for us in this text. You got to remember, Paul is writing to believers. He's writing to the church. And yet what he does, he, he, he takes sort of a tangent. He basically says, hey. You must not walk as the Gentiles. And let me show you what's going on inside of them. You get that? But that's what he's doing. He, he starts to, he, he's talking, the, the spirit has kind of opened them up and have, he's exposing what's going on in the, in the, in the body or in the person of, uh, who, who is locked in unbelief. And Paul says, okay, let me give you an anatomy lesson, right? All right the Gentiles that you're imitating? Let me just show you about them. First of all, look at their minds. Look at what Paul says, no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So right there, if you want to look at the people that you're tempted to imitate out there who don't know Jesus, let's start with the mind. What's going on in their minds? He says it's futile. That word futile carries with it the idea of meaningless or vanity or it's lacking eternal purpose. There is no fear of God. And so that's what Paul is doing. He says, hey, the people that you're trying to imitate, if you open them up and crack them open, nothing's there. Like, there is no fear of God. They don't value eternity. Eternity is not even on their radar. That's what he's saying. He says, okay, let's go beneath the mind. Look at verse 18. In terms of what they understand... Paul says, look at it. It's darkened. Think about that image. What do you see when you walk into your house and close every window and every blind and shut off every light? You see nothing. And that's what Paul is saying. When you peel back what's going on in the heart of an unbeliever as it relates to them understanding the Lord, the things of the Lord, it's Dark, nothing's in there. He says, okay, well, what does this do to them? Look at what it says in the middle of verse 18. On account of this, they are alienated from the life of God. Like they're dead. Like, like life comes from God and they are so alienated from him that they're dead in their trespasses and sins. They don't have a mind that have, their minds are futile. They don't understand the things of the Lord. But that's who you want to draw near. You want to draw near to them who are alienated from God. Okay, that's what you want. Look at what he says in their hearts. Due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous. That word right there, calloused. They're unable to feel. I have a few calluses on my hands and you just poke at them. And it's no feeling there. And that's what Paul is saying. Their hearts are calloused and hard. One writer says about the way what Paul does right here, it says the tense of that word is the most important tense of all tenses in the Greek language. It is used less frequently than all other tenses. And when it is used, there is a deliberate choice on the part of the writer Paul is suggesting that they have reached this point of callousness after a period of rejecting God and his ways. And now there is a hard, impenetrable shell that renders them insensitive to God. And it describes their present and ongoing condition because of it. So that callousness it's not just like it, it's a callousness that comes after a long period of rejecting. Right. It's what you get in the in, in the book of Exodus when when Pharaoh's heart was hardened and hardened and hardened after one plague and then another and then another. And finally, the Lord shows up and takes your firstborn son and your heart is so hardened that you mount up your men and you follow after the Israelites right into the sea and you kill yourself. You get it the hardened heart that sees the might and strength and power of the God of the Lord. And you still go after evil. You get it. That's the language that Paul is using. Now you see why Paul is admonishing them. And not just I, Paul, he says, I am the Lord. That's not who you want to imitate Family. Do you see what they're like? Do you see their lack of understanding? Do you see how hardened their hearts are? Do you see that that path towards sin and and, and the pleasures of the world, that it leads you down this place where your heart is hardened and Christ is not precious? He says, look, this is why I'm admonishing you in the Lord. Do not imitate them. That is not who you want to be like, because that does not end well. That's the danger, he's saying. And I love the eternal security of the saints. I believe that God finishes what he starts. I believe that we're chosen in Christ before the foundations of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. I believe that Jesus Christ will not lose one single child of his. And I hear that and I love that and I rest in that. But you also have to hear the danger in this passage and the danger says when we will throw aside Jesus and and cast our lot with the world and follow the world and imitate the world, you cannot do that and it not harm your heart. He said, that's a dark place to be. That's not who you want to be imitating. Look at where it lands them. That might be you this morning, that this might be you where you're giving yourself up to sensuality and to greed and to all manners of wickedness. And I wanna say to you, because I've been there, it's a hard place to be. When you stop caring, when you can't feel, it's a hard place to be when your heart is hardened to the Lord. When you can't see and and, and you think of ways to be wicked and nothing you do grieves your soul, right? Like that's a really hard and dark place to be. And here's what Paul is saying is that that's where we were. And if you're there, I, I plead I pray and I plead that the Holy Spirit will soften you and make you soft and make your heart malleable. You can't do it, but God Almighty can. And he does it. Acts every single person in this room who knows him and we know that he has made us different. He has made us new. And if you're a believer and you're playing with sin and you think that nobody sees and it's not hurting you, that is a lie from the pit of hell. It is hurting you. It is making you push limits. It is hardening your heart towards the Lord and the things of the Lord. And Paul is saying, hey, family, I'm just telling you, it's dangerous. You don't want to play with it. It's dangerous. Now, here's the question that we have to ask, and it's the question that we work through every week. What has Christ done to make this good news for us? What has he done? I love how the NIV translates verse 20. He said, it says that that, however... It's not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ. And so I think what Paul is doing here is he, he's, he's, he's talking to the church and he's saying, hey, you're going down this path and your life is looking just like the world around you. And he says, but wait a minute. It, it's difficult. I get it. And it's dangerous. I'm letting you know you don't play with this. But also there's another way. And it's the way of Christ. And he says, this is not what you learned about Christ. That's why he says in verse 21, haven't you heard about him? Weren't you taught in him? He is the truth. As opposed to darkness, he is light. As opposed to deadness, he is life. And so what Paul is doing, he's actually saying, hey, if you want to look at another person who's walked the earth, right? If you're so caught up in looking at people and, 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 and people to imitate and things to do, let me point you to another person who lived a beautiful life and you won't find him in Ephesus. It's, it's Jesus of Nazareth who walked the earth. A beautiful man. Did not care what the earth or the world thought about him. Pursued holiness was tender, was kind to the poor, made room for the outsiders, would humble himself and take on the form of a servant, would be obedient even until the point of death, would endure calamity and affliction and punishment and pain, would not be driven by the passions of the flesh, but would live a renewed life of the spirit. That when he walked around, people wondered, who is this man? We've never seen anyone like him. That when Roman centurions saw him, they said, hey, this this was not just a man. This was God almighty in the flesh who dwelt among us. This was not just a man. We crucified the wrong one. But that's what Paul is saying. You've learned about him. You've met him. You're known by him. He was beautiful. And that is not the way he lived his life. That's what Paul is doing. He's pushing Jesus back in front of them as an example, saying, study him. You know him. This is how life is to be lived. It's like he lived it. But it wasn't, Paul isn't, and and you can see it, right? If you want to go, just I'm going to give you a preview of the next few weeks. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Where am I getting this idea that Paul is putting Jesus forward as an example, saying that's who you imitate? Look at what he says in chapter five, verse one. Therefore, beloved, be imitators of God. You get it. That's what Paul is doing. Paul is putting Jesus's life in front of them and saying, hey, that's a beautiful life. That's who you imitate right there. Now, here's the thing about Jesus's life that that. He wasn't just a picture of a great way to live. Paul also was showing us that he has done an amazing work. His beautiful way of living was a part of a bigger, glorious work. And I think it's right here and I think it's hard to see it. But, but, but listen, to, listen to how I read this section. And you tell me if you notice what Paul is trying to do. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as truth is in Jesus. Do you see what Paul is saying? He is drawing a line in the sand and he is saying them, those Gentiles. That's how they act. But not you. And the reason you are not like them is because of him. You get the imagery, what he's saying? You're not like them. You've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of his marvelous light. And you are now his. If he did not show up, you would still be like them. But you're not like them because of him. You get what Paul is saying? It wasn't just that he lived a beautiful life. He was about his business, his beautiful work. And that was to take you from over there from being them to bring you to himself so that he can now be your king and your savior and your Lord, the lover of your souls. And he would go to a cross to purchase you from that. What Paul is saying is our activity right is fueled by our new identity we're not doing this to win God's favor what we're commanded to do is because we have his favor there's a movie and it's boys in the hood right don't go watch it parents I hope I don't get in trouble for re- referencing Boys in the Hood, but don't go, don't watch it, all right? Well, some of you can, some of you can, right? But there's a, there's a, po- there's a po- powerful scene. So Trey is the son of Lawrence Fishburne, and so Trey is growing up in L.A. across the street from another family where there's not a father in the home. And I think what the, what, what the Singletons are doing, right, is they're, they're just showing you sort of what ha- the, the impact of a father, when a father is present, how that affects the outcomes of life. And, and so there's this scene, right, where uh, Ricky, and, and it's Trey's friend, he lives across the street, and Ricky's been shot. And Ricky dies, and, and Trey is holding him. And so Ricky grows up, and his brother is Doughboy, he's a single mom, and they have another friend um, who's in a wheelchair, little Chris, right? And so Trey is like, he, his friend dies in his arm. And so Trey goes into the house to get his gun. He goes into the house and his, his dad walks in as he's getting the gun out. And his dad said, oh, you're tough now. What you, what you going to do with that? You going to go shoot somebody? And in one of the most powerful scenes of the movie, he says, Trey, you're not like them. He says, Trey, you're my son. And you will act accordingly. You get what he's saying? He's saying, son, you're mine. And and they aren't mine. And that's part of the reason why they're acting the way they're acting. And I sympathize with you. And it hurts. I know you've lost your best friend. But I'm telling you, you will not retaliate because you're mine. And we don't act like that in my house. And Trey puts the gun down, shirt bloodied, and his dad just holds him. You see what his dad is saying? Your identity as my son, it affects what you do. And because you're mine, I'm not letting you do this. Family, that's what Jesus is saying. You're his. And because we've been bought with a price, he is saying, behave accordingly. That's what he's saying. You're his. You belong to him. He's yours. That's what Christ has done. He has delivered us from that and brought us to himself. That's the good news of the text. My last question. Can I really do this? Can we really do this? This skill of rejecting what is wrong and accepting what is right, casting off the old man that stays and dwells within us and putting on this new man. How do we do it? Can we really do it? And the answer is yes. Yes, Christian, we can do this. Now, the first thing, you got to sort of get out of this idea that God is saying, do this and do this. I think it's so easy to kind of get lost in it I talked about it last week, that at the end of the day, if this is so far over your heads that we can't make sense of it, well, Paul is actually saying, be like Jesus. Right? So you think about Jesus. In my mind, I always think that all he did was just said no to sin and just rejected sin. Right? I fall into that really easily. But here's the thing that you kind of have to remember. He did not just not sin and say no to sin. The Lord Jesus also said yes to righteousness, that that was the way he lived his life, rejecting what is evil and doing what is righteous and holy. You see a glimpse of this in, in, in the wilderness when Jesus is tempted. You remember when Satan came to him and says, hey, here are some stones. I want you to turn the stones into bread. Now, Jesus did not simply not sin and he did not tell Satan, hey, you know what? My father says I can't sin. You want to know how we answer Satan? Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You, you hear what he's doing? It, it's nuance, But here's what he's saying. My father did not call me just to say no to you. He's also calling me in this moment of my hunger to be fed and to feast on him. That's radically different than just saying, no, I'm not turning stones to bread. That is the other end of the spectrum where, no, I will not do this, and I will find satisfaction in the Lord. That will be my food right here, even though I'm starving, right? That that's what Paul is commending to us He is saying you would not find Jesus sitting in a room, simply not sinning. You'd also find him out and about positively glorifying the Lord with his teaching, with his words, with his ministry. That that we have to understand that if we're going to grow up into Christ, putting off is it's abstaining from sin. But putting on is indulging in righteousness. It's feasting on Christ's likeness. It's finding delight and putting on those things. It's not just a putting off. It's also a putting on. And Paul is saying, you've seen this in the ministry of Jesus. Now, what's happened to us that we are able to do this? I just told you we've been delivered. We are not like them anymore, family. We are in him. That's the first thing we are new. And then you have this beautiful text. It's right there in verse 23. It says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. It could also be translated. Your minds have been renewed by the spirit. In other words, you hear what Jesus is saying. When you became a believer. The old man was put off and the righteousness and the holiness of Christ was put on you and your mind was renewed And the spirit is continually renewing your mind that you and I may live out of our conversion experience. That in the same way that the old man was put off and the new man was put on, what Paul is saying, because the mind is new and is being renewed, you can continue to do this until you breathe your last breath because the spirit is in you. This is what this means. It means that we're different. If you crack a Christian open and you could look at the spirituality of our minds and our our spirit man, what Paul is saying is that we're different. That the restored mind, if we use it Christian, it can do amazing things in split seconds. It can make judgments that we could not make if we were still in our sin. In a split second, in that moment when we're tempted to fall into sin, in the split second, we can weigh it and we can test it and we can reject it, not because we're strong, but because we're indwelled by the Spirit and he is renewing our minds. He is actually saying when Jesus made you his, he didn't just change your status before God. He changed you. He reconstituted and remade you and I in his image. And Paul is saying, Christian, use the mind of Christ. It is yours. That your mind is quick enough. I don't care how old and how how slow you think it's getting. Your mind is quick enough to discern what is evil and to pursue what is good. The outer man is wasting away, but the inner man can be renewed day by day, says Paul. And so how does this look, Pastor L? What does this look like? Give you one example, right? So this week, some new Jordans came out. (laughs) Right? I, I hate that I use this all the time, but you can fill in the blank, right? If you got something that, it might be going to TJ Maxx, it might be, Going to the flea market, I mean, you might have a lot of money and you can do other things, right, other than just Jordans. So I, I don't know, like, I think on some level, wherever we are, we're all kind of in this place where, all right, these new Jordans released on Super Bowl night, right? And it's the Justin Timberlake Jordans, right, the ones that he did and there's some other ones. And I'm, I'm watching the Super Bowl. and I'm like, Oh, the drawer is open. If I just push this button, I could have my chance to get these Jordan Timberlake, th- these Justin Timberlake Jordans. And, you know, I can resell them. I can buy them for 200 and I can make eight hundred dollars off of them. Right. So, like all of this is kind of going through my mind, not, not to keep them, but to flip them. Right. And so here it is. Right. This this I open up this app and it's, it's there. And so I'm at my parents' house, like, watching a game. I'm like, oh, man, those kind of fresh. He got those on right now, right? <laughs> and so I'm tempted to, like, I'm tempted to enter the draw and just hit buy, right? And then you know what happens? Didn't you and your wife say if a purchase is over this, that the other person has to know about it? <laughs> you get that? Do you really need another pair of shoes? How many pair of shoes do you need? You know? Are you coveting just because... This is new, and it's the latest thing to buy? Is is, is covetousness over you? Are you desiring what you don't have? Is there some status thing behind it, right? Are you cooler? Because you can wear these shoes. You you can say you're the first person to get them. You get what happens? All of a sudden, if it was me and the old me that put like 20-inch rims on my car, I don't care. Like, I don't care. Like, that's not there. That's not happening. But if you're a new person, and the Spirit of God is in you, this new thing comes up, and, and you can stop for a moment. No, my, I ain't tell my wife. Okay, that's one. Oh, so you're going to sneak them and hide them, right? <laughs> you got enough pair of shoes? Yeah, okay, so you covered them. Did you want them before they came out? Did you even know they were coming out? No. Did you need them? No. You see how it happens? And in that moment, you're able to test. And in that moment, you know what I did? I shut my phone down and closed it up and watch them Timberlake Jordan sell me right on by, <laughs> right? And to be honest, it kind of hurt. I just wanted to flip them. I didn't want to wear them. I just wanted to make $800, right? That's the skill. Putting off, putting on. And you can do it, Christian, because your mind is being renewed after the image of Christ. And so I'd encourage you. Whether it's lust. Or pornography. Adultery. Spending and living out of your means. Whatever it is you feel in the blank. And what God is saying I've given you the mind of Christ. Feed your mind with the word of God and let the word of God enable you to sift through your heart and the junk that will come your way. That's what I loved about Miss Claudia. When a part came to Miss Claudia and she couldn't quite make sense of what to do with it. She would come to my office and she would knock on the door. Hey, can I get the prints? And I know what that meant. That meant I had to pull out the blueprints and take them to Miss Claudia's desk. And Miss Claudia would spread out the blueprints all over her table and she would study the blueprints and say, you know what? I just learned that this part needs this many holes and this one doesn't measure up. She did not wing it. She didn't wing it. She didn't trust her own mind. She trusted the prince, the prince that the engineer gave her. That is what ruled her decisions. And so if we're going to do this and practice this and get skilled at rejecting and accepting and putting off and putting on, you gotta have a higher authority in your life other than you and what feels right. Get it? Gotta have the higher authority. So that's my prayer, Redeemer, is that we would grow in this skill of putting off, putting on, that we might grow into him who is the head. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. I'm so sorry, Lord, we went this long. I went this long. Uh, I praise you for people who are gracious and kind. I pray that we would uh, hide these things in our hearts that we wouldn't sin against you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.